Each week, I, I love the Word of God. And each week, I, sometimes I'm just like, man, I get to do this for a living. I, I get to study the Word of God and, de- and dig deep into it. And the thing I like about the Word is that you can be looking at a passage, and I'm always looking for repeated ideas, for words, for phrases, for things that are kind of coming out uh, through the scriptures. And, and as I do, there's something that, you know, I can read it at one season of my life and then I can come back to it. This very same passage in another season of life and I'm getting a whole new set of understanding and, and things that are going on. So the, the well is deep, it's bottomless uh, for what the word wants to do in, in our life. And Particularly in this passage, as I was looking at just these 11 verses this week, I was just asking, is there anything popping out to me? Is there anything? And this was right around Tuesday. Uh, and, and Tuesday is kind of the first looking into this and just praying through it. And, and there were four words that really just stood out to me. And that was, do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. And, and this shouldn't surprise us because in our human hearts, our, our hearts are prone uh, to be deceived. They're, they're prone to wander. In fact, Jesus really talks about this when he says that our hearts are prone to deception. Three times in the Gospel of John, he says that, that Satan is the ruler or the influencer of this world in John 12, 14, and 16. And said he's, he's constantly, day after day, lying to us. In John 8, he says that's his natural tongue, is deception, and that he wants to lie to us. I was thinking of the, the old hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. And one of my favorites, and, and in the, the third stanza of that, it says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. And as I think about that, I think, you know, that proneness is in all our hearts, and it's prone to compromise, Lord, I feel it, prone to justify things, Lord. Uh, prone to idolize things. Since the fall, back in Genesis, since the very beginning, our hearts have been set on defiance against God's authority. That's just the natural bent of our human heart, is that we will want to defy the things that God brings to us. And sometimes it's volitionally. And we've all done that, where we just said, I know what the Word says. I don't care. I'm going to do it. And we've all done that. At certain times in our lives. Sometimes it's inadvertent. We don't really want to, but we just find ourselves doing it. it this really comes out in Psalm 119, 110. It says this, With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. That wander there is, in an, is an inadvertent wandering. It, it's a, it's, I don't even know that I was doing this. It's just my heart can just so be decepti- deceived that it can go into things that I don't even know that it was going towards. And one of the ways that happens is by trivializing or downplaying the severity of sin. And that's what was going on in Corinth. I mean, it was, it was rampant. They, they were divided. They were, they were arguing over who they were following, whether it was Peter or Paul or Apollos, and, and who was in better standing because of the orator that, well, well, Peter's a much better speaker. Well, no, I think Apollos is a much better speaker, and we're following him. And if it wasn't that, wasn't bad enough. There was incest in the church, and, and they were just applauding it. They weren't mourning it. They weren't going, this shows concern. They were just applauding it and going, whoa, okay, that's great. And then in our passage today, it talks about that there were lawsuits, that they were actually suing one another, and they were going to secular courts and airing out. Now, this isn't the, 
major things, but even trivial things. They would take it before a secular judge and they would air out their things and then they would go, whoa, what is going on in the church? How is that any different from what we're seeing in the world? Because you all are suing one another and bringing this up before, throwing all your trash before everything else. And what's so different about the church? And then Paul uses, he says, it's better for you to suffer wrong than to do wrong. In other words, by, by taking your brother to court. In fact, he goes on and he uses a phrase and he says, do you not know? Seven times he uses it. Do you not know? And, and really what he's saying here is, surely you know this. Surely this is on your radar. And he says, and he says a statement, the unrighteous or the wrongdoers, in other words, he's connecting it from suffering wrong, doing wrong, to being a wrongdoer. He says, wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. And then he goes on and he lists nine categories of wrongdoers. Sexually immoral which basically is any form of sexual intercourse outside of marriage between a husband and a wife. He says, idolaters, worshipers of any God besides the Lord. And we all know that our hearts can be idol-making factories, and we can, we can you know, make idols out of anything and start serving it rather than the Lord. Adulterers, married people having sex with someone other than their spouse. Homosexuality, men sleeping with men, women sleeping with women. Now, I'll, I'll come back to this because I know that this is, a, this is one that's in our culture. This is a hotbed right now. Thieves, taking what is not theirs. Greedy, people whose hearts always want more and have the power to do so. Drunkards, he says. And we understand that. People who are medicating themselves on alcohol to get through life. Revilers and slanderers, he says, those who lie about others. And swindlers those who cheat others. Now, this is interesting. There's a couple words here. And this is not an exhaustive... The first thing I want to tell you, this is not an exhaustive list. Paul could name more things that are going on. But what Paul does is he often... The letter that he's writing to like this in Corinth, he's addressing the things that are going on in Corinth specifically and generally. And in the same way, you know, just like when he wrote Ephesus, he, he included a few other things that were going on in Ephesus. Like he said, filthy speech or crude joking or idolatry or immorality. And, and so there were, things, there were things that were common, but there were also things that were different. And so he would go specifically to those. But then he said the same thing in Ephesus. He said, such people who practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so take, for example, in Corinth. Now, we've mentioned that in Corinth, it was a sexually immoral place. It was rampant in Corinth. I mean, it was, there, it was all over the place. Things were being justified. Things were going on. Homosexuality was a part of the culture as well. It was a big part of the culture. In fact, the Romans who were in charge at the time, Nero, during this writing, when Paul is writing, Nero was at that time, he was about to marry a teenage boy, Sporus. It's written in the annals of history that he was going to marry a teenage boy. Now that, that was maybe bizarre because this was a teenage boy, but the fact that there was homosexuality was not because 14 out of the first 15 Roman emperors were either homosexual or bisexual. 
So to say that this wasn't happening in Corinth and this wasn't an issue in their culture is far from it. It was, a, it was a steady part of the culture, just like it is in ours. And so the church was going, how do I respond? What do we do? Is this okay? So the first thing is, this is, this is not an exhaustive list. This was going on all over the place. But the second part is, I think Paul doesn't emphasize one sin over another. And, and this is significant. When you look at it, he takes significant things that we would label as significant, and he puts them right next to things that we, would, we could just bypass. He says adultery is right next to greediness. Now, if someone comes to you and they say, well, you know, I've, I'm, in, I'm having an adulterous affair. You know, we would go, whoa, whoa, whoa wait a minute. We'd go, but, and someone came in and goes, well, I really have a struggle with greediness. We will go, oh, well, pep, not that big a deal. We all, we're all greedy. You know, but we would look at this one and we go, well, no, that one's more significant than this one. It puts homosexuality right next to swindler. And so what he's doing here is our tendency is to excuse one and condemn the other. So I would say that generally in our culture, this is the way that this gets fed, is that this is how it's read. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And somehow we begin to put a, a label on and, and, and make it that we're all looking and go, whoa, I can't believe that. I can't believe you're doing that. When we're not looking at the very same thing, maybe in a different form, that we're doing in our own lives. And this isn't right. And so if you're here this morning and you have felt in some way shamed or singled out or maybe fear of someone's going to find out that what you're dealing with, then shame on us in the church for letting that happen. Because the church should be the safest place for us to go, you know what, I'm struggling with this. And now that may not be the same thing that I'm struggling with, but I'm struggling too. And we're all struggling and this is not supposed to be the place where we have one going, well, whoa, you know, I struggle, but that's really struggle. I mean, that, that, that's really deeper. Now, let me press into this. I'm pressing this a little bit bigger because I know this is big in our culture. This issue is so front and center in our culture, and it has touched us in a lot of different ways. Some of us directly, some of us in our family, some of us in our friends. And there's been a lot of hurt, and there's been a lot of misunderstanding, even from well-intentioned believers. There's been a lot of hurt and a lot of misunderstanding. So when I approach this this morning, man, I know that for some of you, you come in and your mind may already be made up. And it doesn't matter what I say, it doesn't matter what kind of scripture I bring, it isn't going to move the needle at all. And I just want to say, I get it. I understand it. You know, this is not the biggest issue. The biggest issue is Jesus and who he says he is. And so maybe you just need to table this issue for a little bit. And we need to be able to talk about the deeper issues uh, that are there. And that would be good. And so I wanted to say, hey, look, you're going to find this to be a very um, understanding, but truthful, hopefully grace and truth. 
as we go through this. And so, but if, you, if this is where you know what, I, I don't want to talk about this one, I, I get it. No one's going to look at you wrong for doing so. Some of you, you know, you don't want to make a decision on this. Because this is going to put you in between the Bible and friends. And in, in, in that space, you're just like, man, I don't really want to answer this. And, and I get that as well. But what I would say is I would say that our indifference to this actually is more harmful than good. Because there are stakes. Whoever is right, the consequence of this are massive. And so we need to be able to step into it, even if it's uncomfortable. And of course, there are some who believe, you know, look, it's wrong, but it's wrong for the wrong reasons. For some of you, it's been, it's wrong because it's gross. I'm just saying, that's not the gospel at all. That shows no compassion. And I think we've all been guilty at some place. You know, when I first entered into this this week, and I was just reading this and going through and, and kind of just letting the Holy Spirit bring the text and, and, and listen, I, I first had to start out with just confession. And part of that for me was, you know, Lord, I, don't, I have not always handled this correctly. Lord, there have been things that I have said that I think has been damaging. There are ways that I've approached this that have not been helpful. That have been more just solid, concrete, truth-oriented with very little grace. And so first and foremost, I want to bring that to you, and I just want to say, uh, I'm sorry, I confess that. And maybe for some of you, you're in, that same, you're in that same boat. You know, Jesus was referred to in the gospel as John as one who was full of grace and truth. And I think the order of that is important. Grace and truth. We lead with grace. We follow up with truth. You leave with grace, you follow up with truth. All grace and no truth is just emotionalism. It's sentimentality. All truth and no grace is fundamentalism. It is as hard, just give me a Bible verse and you're wrong and you're going to hell. And, 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 and it just, it's hard and it's condemning. Jesus held grace and truth, that tension, perfectly. And so we must as well. We often talk about being soft on the edge and firm at the core meaning that we don't lose concrete truths that we know are truths, but we got to be soft on the edges so that there's some pliability. So when someone comes up to us and they bring an issue, it's just like not like running into a concrete wall. It, it's, it's coming and going, you know what, okay, let, let's talk about this. I like what Preston Sprinkle says on this. He says, if we get truth right but do not have love, then we've gotten it wrong. If we get truth right, but we do not have love, then we've gotten it wrong. It, and which begs the question, well, what does it mean to love? And, and I think this is where in our culture it gets nuanced, because to love does not mean I have to agree. To love does not mean I have to embrace. I can completely love you and disagree. I will serve you, I will love you, but it does not mean I have to agree with you. We know that from parenting. As you raise your children, you know there are things that you disagree with, but do we not love them? No, we love them. We know that. We know that intuitively. Now, let me say this. 
This is a sermon on 1 Corinthians. And the reason we're bringing this up today is because this is smack dab in the middle of 1 Corinthians 6. And so we need to address this. This is not a sermon on homosexuality that's using 1 Corinthians as one of its passages. This is a sermon that's going through 1 Corinthians. Paul addresses it. This happens to be the hot button in our culture. So we're going to address it on that. So, that, so my goal on this really is just to be faithful to what Paul is saying. Now, depending upon what Bible translation you use, whether it's English Standard Version or the NIV, it says it in two ways. Men or women in this who practice homosexuality or men or women who have sex with men or women. It's it's that same way. So there's two Greek words here. One is an adjective and one is more of a noun. But it refers to both passively and actively participating in same-sex acts. That's the nature of it. And so the truth part of this is that Paul is saying plainly, this is not God's design. This is not God's design. This is a distortion and therefore is not best for you, and it is a sin. Just like all the other ones that are mentioned. He's not singling this one out. He's saying all of these are distortions. The culture may embrace it and honor it, But that doesn't make it right, which is why Paul listed among all the other things. And I get it, because in our culture, you know, there's no one that's trying to normalize adultery and say it's okay in some circumstances. No one is trying to say, hey, drunkenness, it's okay in certain circumstances. Uh, Stealing, hey, it's okay in certain circumstances. No one's trying to do that. But I think it's good to ask, though, when we see a list like this, what is common among all the things in this list? What do all these nine things have in common? It's pride. At the core, it's pride. Something we can all relate to. What's the core of all of our sin? It's pride. It's the pride of the human heart. Rosaria Butterfield, who was a practicing lesbian for years and a tenured professor at Syracuse University, Uh, She had come to Christ over many years, and she says something that I think relates not only to this issue, but to all sin issues that we deal with. She says this, the core issue is never sexual. It's the attitude toward God behind our sexuality. We want to establish what is right. We want to be God. We want to judge rather than be judged. We want to make reality around our preferences. It is not homosexuality that condemns. It's the sin behind that sin that condemns. I like what J.D. Greer says in relation to this. He says, look, homosexuality doesn't send you to hell. And he says, the reason I know that is because heterosexuality doesn't send you to heaven. And I had to think on that. Things got a point. These are the external workings of what's the core. The core is pride. Pride in her heart. And any time I sin in my life, it is me saying, I have a better plan than you, God. And whatever that sin is, whether it's sexual or not, that is the core. And so following Christ, really, is denying ourselves, taking up our cross, and following him. I like what Butterfield says in this. She says, to follow Jesus, every person must surrender up everything. All my ideas, ambitions, dreams, and yes, even my sexuality. Even my sexuality. So, let me, let me, but there's a caveat here. 
What Paul is not talking about is same-sex attraction. That's not what he's talking about. Same-sex attraction may feel as normal to you as opposite-sex attraction may feel to someone else. And as I was looking through this, you know, I, I think, I don't think someone who is attracted to the same sex necessarily chooses that any more than I chose to like women. I didn't grow up one day and go, well, okay, I'm going to choose to like women. No, I, it just, it, it was part of culture, whatever it was in me, and, and I liked girls, you know, and so I think the same can be the opposite, but the thing here that I think is going on, in whatever form it is, now I can choose, I can choose to act on it, and in either case, that's the way it is, but, but we know from Paul, from Romans 1, that the, our flesh has been corrupted, whatever form it takes, from the beginning, and there will be distortions. And so in our culture, we have to understand we are sexually broken people living in a sexually broken culture. That's all of us. Whether you're homosexual or heterosexual or whatever else, whatever it is, we all are broken people living in a sexually broken culture. In fact, say that with me. We are sexually broken people living in a sexually broken culture. Do you believe that? That's important for us to understand. Because what Paul speaks to here is actually beginning, he says, what it, where it really comes into is when you act on, embrace, or justify those things that are outside of God's design. That's when it gets enacted. That's what he's talking about being a wrongdoer. When you actually begin to applaud and embrace it and, and, and move into it. You know, this would be, you know, I, I recently watched, I don't know what it was, a couple of years ago or a year ago in some kind of award show. And, you know, and, and Will Smith was up there and he slapped Chris Rock, I think. Slapped him on the side of the face, you know. And, and that just kind of became this thing and it became a news topic of the day. And as I started reading more on Will Smith, I always liked Will Smith. And I was reading more on him. And, and I read where Will and his wife have an open marriage. Meaning that they're committed to one another, but they've given each other the freedom to go out and have sexual experiences outside of their marriage. Now, if I came home to Susan and I said, hey, honey, you know, Will Smith had an idea, and, and I really thought, this, this is a good thing. You know, it just seems appealing to me. And I thought that maybe we should have an open marriage. How do you think Susan would respond? She would say, I have the feeling to take this two by four and slap her right alongside your head. And, and none of us would blame her, would we? No, we, we wouldn't blame her at all. But Paul here, what I, what I love about this is Paul says, look, I'm not done. He goes, he goes on and he says something very deep and meaningful at the end of the section of Scripture that I think informs us not only about the possibility of change, but I think the possibility of how we treat one another. And in verse 11, notice what he says. As he, after he went through the whole list, and then he says this, and that is what some of you were, but, now this is the difference maker, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. 
The washed means that your guilt has been removed. The sanctified means that you've been set apart for God and his purposes. The justified means that your sin is no longer held against you. It has been canceled. Your debt has been been paid in full. Which really brings us this, that there is a possibility of change because one of the questions that comes up is, can I change? Is change possible? I was born this way, and I don't think I can change. Paul would say, with the Spirit of God, there's always change possible. But there's this, that does not mean that the desires instantly leave. Change is possible, but it doesn't mean the desire disappears because not every broken part of us is healed instantly. I don't know what your story is, but when you came to Christ and, you, and your sins are forgiven and you've confessed your sin, did, do you sin no more? Not at all. I know alcoholics who have come to Jesus and they've got a healing pretty instantly. And they have never desired to have a drink again. Now, they're not hanging around the same places and that, but they're just not drawn toward it. They're just like, they just have this, I don't want it anymore. Yet I know some who have come to Christ and it has been a battle. And their desire is still there. And so it's kind of like a, a two steps forward, you know, or three steps forward, two steps back kind of thing. They're, they're making ground, but they keep going, man, this is a battle. It's a fight. I, I still find myself wanting it. I, I've worked with people who have been sexual addicts, and it's the same way. Some have come to Jesus, and, and they're just like, man, God has freed me from this. But I know some where it has been an incredible, hard, long fight that's exhausting. And it is like a three steps forward, two step back, and it's just incredibly hard. And they, they, you know, and they get to the point where they go, it's just easier to give into it. I know what that's like. Any of us that fight sin know sometimes the battle can be so strong that we're just like, it's just as easier just to give into it. There's things I've asked Jesus to take away when I came to Christ, and man, he instantly took them away. There's other things that I would like him to take away, but I still have to battle them. And I have a feeling I'm going to battle them until I go home. It will, it will still be that battle. I didn't, did not get an instant healing. And by the power of God's spirit within, anything is possible. I think the deception here is that the Satan can come in and go, you can't change. You have these feelings, you can't change those. That's who you are. And Jesus, no, it's not. You're a child of God. You're made in the image of God. You have value. I've gone to the cross for you. I give you your identity. Whether you're heterosexual or homosexual or whatever it is your feelings are, that's not what identifies you. I give you your identity. Because that is the truth. You don't get your identity from something in the culture because that, that thing is going to be keeping change. And he goes, I understand that you have these feelings. I don't condemn you for having these feelings. I want to come in, though, and I want to help you in that. And hopefully the church can come along and we can surround one another, not condemn somebody for having the feelings. But we can, Because, look, we can go, look, I may not have the same, but I have others.
I can look at the speck in yours, but I got a plank in mine, and it may not be the same plank, but it's a plank. And I have it in my eye as well. And I think what also this does is I think this informs how then, because of that, then how, how do we treat others? How do, how do we treat those who maybe have a, 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 something that, that we wouldn't struggle with, but they do? How do, how do we treat them? What's the church supposed to do? Well, I think one of the things is that we don't judge them. Paul speaks a lot about judgment in these chapters and, and judging. And we, we don't judge someone when we assess the truth or assess the situation. Judging comes in when we dismiss them as a person. So me saying, hey, that's a distortion, is not judging. Me dismissing you because you struggle with a certain distortion is judging. So anytime the church, the people in the church, dismiss somebody because of a certain thing that they struggle with, that's judgment. And Jesus says, you need to be careful how you judge because by that standard, I'll judge you. And we all know all of us would be toast in that case, right? And that applies to all of us on all issues. But let's apply it to someone who comes to us and says, hey, you know, I'm gay. The last thing that Jesus would want you to do is push him away. The last thing he'd want you to do is go, well, do you know what Leviticus 18 says? You know, the last thing he would want us to do is just to push him away in that way because that's not how Jesus treated us. J.D. Greer says this, we have to love our gay neighbor more than we love our position on sexual morality. Now, just don't let that one go by. We have to love our gay neighbor more than we love our position on, on sexuality. What does that mean? That means that we lead with grace. That's the grace part. But I think there's also the speak the truth and love part. And that's another thing that, that we need to do. And in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, if it is true, and I believe it is, and those who openly embrace any of these sins, not singling one out, but any of them, does not inherit the kingdom of God, then the most lovingly thing we can do is just speak the truth and love. Not dismiss anybody but lovingly know that we can speak truth. And the point is this. The ground is level below the cross. That's what the gospel tells us, is that the ground is level below the cross, and, it, and there's, one thing that put, there's only one thing that puts us outside the grace is, is refusing to acknowledge our brokenness before the Lord. We're all broken. And I think the third here, then, is to show them where the hope lies. Show them where the hope lies. I mean, our greatest need isn't the satisfaction of our fleshly desires. Whatever that may be, that's not, that's not our greatest desire. What is our, what is our greatest longing? Our greatest longing is for something that humans can't provide. And what's that? The love of God. Who loves us more than we could know. And that's part of our sanctification journey, isn't it? that we learn just how much he loves us in spite of us. How deep our sin goes. You know, I love the time when 
The, the Pharisees bring that woman in John 8 caught in adultery. And they bring her to Jesus and they want to trap him. And they just said, Jesus, what does the law say? And he knew what it says in Leviticus. If anybody is called in adultery, stone them. He knew that. And so they bring this woman caught in adultery before Jesus. And they go, what is he going to say? And so Jesus then basically knows what they're doing. Basically says, he who was without sin, go ahead and cast the first stone. And then he kneels down to draw, and we don't know exactly what he's doing. I think he was biding time because he knew what was happening. And what's really interesting in that passage, it says, the older left first and then the younger. And I've asked myself, I wonder why the older ones left first. And the only thing I can come up with was probably because they had more stones in their pockets. And so you can just imagine them going, oh, okay, okay, you know, and dropping things out. If I, if I ever, you know, looked at someone in the wrong way, you know, if I ever lied, if I ever talked behind someone's back, just all these rocks are going out. And Jesus is drawing on the ground and rocks are dropping on the sand and pretty soon everybody leaves. And then Jesus turns to her and goes, woman, is there anybody here to accuse you? She goes, no, they're all gone. And what does he say to her? Neither do I condemn you. Go, sin no more. Now, he didn't say to her, I won't condemn you if you don't sin anymore. What does he say? I, neither do I condemn you. I've already taken care of it, woman. I have friendship. I'm with you. I, I've, I've secured this for you. Now you go, sin no more. See, look. God's acceptance of us is not based on having right desires. It's based on Jesus' work on our behalf. God's love for you is not that you have right desires. It's on Jesus' work on your behalf. And that's what the gospel reminds us. His last words on the cross were not, go fix yourself. What did he say? It is finished. I've taken the full course. That woman that was caught in adultery, should she have been stoned? Yes. But Jesus says, I'll take it for you. Go. Sin no more. Let's take it home. Worship team, you can come on up. We have been washed, he says. You have been sanctified and you have been justified by what Christ has done. And, boy, the, the balance of grace and truth is hard, I know. And, and, and this really, when you talk about these things, these are conversations that continue to need to be have happen. But I just want to say, look, if you come here this morning and you find yourself with same-sex attraction, you are not condemned. Jesus says, I understand that. Come Let's, 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 let's love on one another. Let's talk about this. Let's support one another. Let's help each other battle our sin so that when we, we will be faithful to the end. Rather than just casting people out left and right because they're doing something that maybe we wouldn't agree with or that we wouldn't like, that's not the church. That's not the gospel. Let me pray for us. Father, we hit a very hard topic this morning but as we do, we, render, we understand that we all are in the same boat. 
You, you went to the cross for all of our sin, regardless of what it looks like. Forgive us for when we begin to raise one up over another and say, well, that one is worse than mine. And we don't look at the plank in our own eye and we begin to cast out. Lord, forgive us for the church hasn't been a place where those who struggle with anything can come in. Help us in this place to be a place where we can come in and we can go, you know what? We're all struggling. We're going to help each other out. And we're going to love on Jesus. And we're going to learn more about how much you loved us and how much you sacrificed for us. We're not going to try to justify anything. We're not going to try and explain anything away. We are just going to bask in your incredible love for us. And so I pray that no matter where we are or who we are or what we struggle with, that we would just experience your embracing hands. And that you have everything that we are really longing for. And that we would maybe find hope for the first time. In Jesus' name, amen. We have the Lord's table up here. We want to invite you to come and partake of that. If you want prayer, we'll have some elders and our wives up here to be able to pray with you or over anything, whatever the Spirit is stirring. You know what to do? When we go, love first. We love because he first loved us. Thanks for coming.